So please take your Bibles and let's open it to Esther chapter 2. It is an Easter weekend, and, um, but we do want to make progress with Esther as well. And so therefore I decided not to stop the series but to continue in it. Um, and that's not to say that uh, it's not good or right to celebrate Easter. Easter, and especially this Sunday, we think about the resurrection of Christ. We celebrate the empty tomb. Um, and that, by the way, is the reason why we know Christianity is true and all other religions are false. Because one man died and rose from the dead, and that man is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is because it is an historic event that our faith is not wishful thinking. We just hope or wish we are right. But based on solid ground, on reality, that if we trust in this risen Jesus, your sins really are forgiven and you will have eternal life with him as he is the first fruits. Now, the reason we're not going to do a special sermon on the resurrection is because if you and I are reading our Bibles correctly, you will see Jesus in all of it. As we keep on reading, we will see from all of the Bible, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the second coming of Christ in a unique way. Remember, that's how Jesus himself told us to read the Bible. Just as a reminder, we've quoted this verse so many times, but Luke 24 verse 27 says, Jesus is talking to the disciples, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says, Moses, the prophets, the Old Testament is talking about me, about the Lord Jesus. So if you have studied your Bible and you haven't arrived at Christ, you haven't studied it in the way the author intended us to study it, to come to Christ, to see him. And therefore, Esther is no exception. Now, I think this book is it's especially tempting not to go to Jesus, not to go to Christ. Why? Because God's name is not even mentioned once in the whole book of Esther. So it's even easier for us. Our natural inclinations are ready to skip him. But now we have a book that doesn't even talk of God. And therefore, it's so much easier for us not to see him there. If you walk away from an Old Testament sermon saying, dare to be an Esther, or dare to be a Mordecai, or dare to be a Daniel. All right, you are, you are David, and you have to kill your giants, and it's all about you, you. We call that Narsa Jesus, right? <laughs> That's making yourself the hero of the story. It's, it's in, a, in essence, an anti-gospel, because what is the message? It is, you can do it if you just try harder. Just have more faith. Just pick yourself up on your bootstraps, and you can do it. But why did Jesus come if you could do it? Why was that precious man's blood shed on the cross if you just had to try harder to be good? You see, we, we, we don't just need a little hips to it or a little fire under our bums, right? Or just some encouragement, just some motivational speaking to feel better for the next week. No, we need to see him again. We need to see Jesus again. That's what you and I really need. Now, again, that doesn't mean there are lessons for us to learn, that there are things you have to try harder and repent of. That's not the point I'm making. I'm just saying that the main point 
of every book of the Bible, of every story of the Bible, is not about you. And that's actually the good news. It's about a God who loves you, who has sent his son to save you. You see, we do have heroes in the Bible. We do have heroines in the Bible. But there's a hero of the heroes. There's a hero of the heroines. There's a hero above them who is God himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. So in the second chapter of Esther, we see the counterpart of Vashti. Someone will replace her, and while the queen Vashti has refused to submit to the king and to wear the crown, we see another woman who's willing to submit, who's willing to, if I could put it in quotation marks, be assimilated into the culture and to wear the crown that Vashti refused to wear. And this chapter is not as clean as we would have wanted it to be. It's not holy. This is not a holy chapter in the Bible. But we do see God's hand preparing everything, anticipating the needs of his people, making everything ready so that he can save his people from utter destruction. Now, just for some background, there is a four-year gap between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. Chapter 1 happened in the third year of King Ahasuerus. And look at chapter 2 verse 16. Uh, 2 verse 16 says, when Esther was taken to king into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the 7th year of his reign. So there's a four-year period gap, pause, you could say, in the story. And this is just trivia or interesting information, but it's just too interesting to leave out. Sometimes I just can't resist. Okay, I have to give it to you. In this four years, we know by the historian Herodotus that this is the same king, King Xerxes, also known as King Xerxes, who tried to invade Greece and where that famous battle took place at Thermopylae, hope I'm pronouncing that correct, where the 300 Spartans stood and resisted and really warded off thousands, thousands of Persians because it was at a narrow pass. So it was, in a sense, didn't matter how much more soldiers could come because they all had to face these 300. And we know the, there's movies made about it. There's so much famous depictions about that. But we also know that that whole conquest ended in an epic failure. So there were some small successes and small failure, but at the end, he didn't conquer. He didn't win. So after four years, after this fantastic failure, King Xerxes had to retreat, go back to Persia, licking his wounds with a wounded ego. And when he comes back, he notices that his bed is a bit colder than usual because he, deep, he, he made a decree against Queen Vashti that she should never come again. Look at chapter 2 verse 1. We pick it up here. After these things, when the anger of King Asuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. In short, in layman's words, he regretted his decision. Now, notice the passive. He doesn't say what the king decreed against her. It says what has been decreed passive. And that just might be a subtle way to imply that it wasn't wholly his decision. Remember, he was drunk, he was angry, and he was manipulated by his counselors to make this decree. So there's a sense where even this decree that was made by him was, in a sense, not made by him. He regretted. He feels sorry for this. And on a side note, we can say being angry, being drunk, leads to despair leads to regret, leads to a broken life, right? You don't need to be an expert to know that as the testimonies of thousands of people, how anger and intoxication leads to broken families, broken marriages. 
And beloved, that's why when God commands you to not be drunk with wine, to be filled with the Spirit, to be self-controlled, to be angry and not sin, it's not because God wants to steal your joy or because he doesn't want you to have a good life. It's because he wants you to have the best life, the greatest life there is that he commands that. He wants your supreme happiness is why he commands us to be holy like he is holy. Now, seeing the king's unhappiness, his young men came up with a plan. Look at the plan in verse tw- verses 2 to 4. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Okay? Now, there could have been a very simple solution to his um, queenlessness, if that's a word. It was very common just to marry someone of nobility. Find, find one of the princes, marry someone of their family. That's of a noble birth. Instead, what do we see? Out of nowhere, a plan comes up in the hearts of the men of the king and say, well, let's make this plan. Let's make a beauty contest of all the beautiful virgins, bring them together, and then you choose out of them. And the king being a man of passion, a pagan king, this pleased him. Now, in the back of your minds, when we read things like this, you should always be thinking of Proverbs 21, verse 1, right? It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. The king thinks he is choosing the next queen. No, God is choosing the next queen. He is orchestrating behind the scenes. Remember what we said, Esther, God's name isn't mentioned, but he's working behind the scenes. And so we are introduced to the two heroes of the story, to Mordecai and Esther. Look at verses 5 to 6. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, if you know your Bibles, your mind should be drawn to another man who is also a Benjaminite, the son of Kish, dot, dot, dot. If we, if we can ever play that Bible game on Wednesday, you can say, I can say you're welcome next time, okay? But I'm talking of the first king of Israel, who was King Saul. He too was a Benjaminite, the son of Kish. So the author is bringing out this little detail to bring up an ancient conflict and wants us to think back of 1 Samuel chapter 15 where King Saul was supposed to kill all the Amalekites, but instead he spared the best and he spared whom? What king? King Agag. And in chapter 3, we're going to meet one of his descendants. So we are going, because of that failure of King Saul, we see the Esther really is the ripple effect of King Saul's sin and disobedience to God. That's really what Esther is. Now, look at um, verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. So Hadassah was the Hebrew name, meaning myrtle. And Esther is the Persian name, meaning star. So much like Daniel and his three friends, what would these 
countries do when once they have exiled, uh, they, they brought in the new exiles, they would give them new names. Why? It's a way to assimilate them into their culture. It's a way for them to say, listen, you are no longer a Hebrew. That's your past. Leave your God behind. Leave your past behind. This is your new identity. This is your new name. Forget that. You are a Persian now. Okay? And so, the challenge for the Jews during their exile, which is the same challenge for you and me, is how do we live like the covenant people of God in a pagan world that hates him? How do we live our faith out in a world that despises his truth? Later in the story, we will discover that sooner or later, and that's going to be true for you and me as well, you will have to decide with whom you are going to align yourself with, with the people of God or with the people of the world. That is going to be a decision you're going to make, even at great cost to yourself. But that's for later. We also see that Esther was an orphan. Look at verse 7, the rest of it. So she, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. Look at the end of verse 7. Mordecai, uh, sorry, uh, when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Her, both her parents died and she is now being raised by her cousin, Mordecai. And because he is raising his niece, we may safely assume that he was significantly older than her and therefore could treat her as a daughter. But we read another interesting fact about Esther right in the middle of verse 7. Look at verse 7 again. It says, The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So, in God's providence, she was a very beautiful woman. Notice the emphasis of the text. Like the, the young man just said, Let beautiful women be sought out for the king. But verse 7 says, She had two things going for her. She had a beautiful figure. And she was lovely to look at. So if I can explain it in layman's terms, she didn't just have a beautiful body. She also had a beautiful face. She was the whole package. Now, I want to say it like um, another pastor, uh, Alistair Begg said it in a cogni accent. Okay, It's not like this thing of beautiful legs, shame about the face. <laughs> okay. It wasn't that, or it wasn't a, Esther wasn't a butterface woman, right? You know what a butterface woman is. Everything's beautiful, butterface. Okay, that is not <laughs> what Esther was. Now, just to say on the sideline, think again. If this queen was chosen based on your birth or your background, Esther wouldn't have stand a chance. Orphan a Jew, one of the exiles, not even a consideration, right? She wouldn't even be considered. If it was in the usual way, the king would have gotten a queen. But based on beauty, in which God has graciously gifted her, she stands a chance. It is therefore no surprise we read in verse 8, look at verse 8. It says, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. So her beauty was God's gift to her to bring her to the place where God wants her to be. Now, loved ones, this is also true for you and me. You and I, the way we look, the way we are, male and female, 
the way we are created by God is not an accident. It's not some cosmic flip of the coin and that's how you look. No, you were purposefully made by God. We know this because of Psalm 139 verse 13, right? What, what, what do we see there? It says, you, God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, this doesn't mean that your genes or exercise or diet doesn't play a role in the way you look, right? Of course they do, but rather that those are the means God used to make you look the way you look. God is even in control of that. And we would do well to heed this point because especially in the time we're living in, God is wise the way he has made us. Whether you are male, female, tall or short, blessed or blessed, Okay, so I had to switch to Afrikaans and the English then. If God is behind it all, the question for you and me is, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? What do we see in our culture, right? People have completely abandoned the worship of the true God and have exchanged him for the worship of creation. And if you feel like a woman, if you decide you are a woman, no matter what your biology is, you can just transfer, you can just change that by a mere feeling. A feeling of discontentment can make you a different person altogether. A woman is simply someone who identifies as a woman. But what is that? That's a rejection of the way God has made you. God is wise. He knows. He understands. What lies behind this rejection or this idea is the severing of our relationship with our Creator. It is the ancient old lie that we are God. We can decide our own destiny. We can create our own purpose instead of receive purpose from the one who's created us. And because people don't know God, they don't know themselves. You see, that's actually where the confusion lies, is when you are severed from your creator, you you lose your knowledge of even you. You don't even know what you are supposed to do, who you are. Practically for us as believers, this means... We need to stop comparing ourselves with others, wishing we were like that, wishing we looked like this, wishing I was a bit taller, wishing I was a bit shorter, wishing I had different hair, wishing I... Beloved, those things are outside of your control. You can't change those things. Your greatest wisdom is to trust God in his wisdom about the way he's made you. And to live it out as male and female, the way he's made us, to embrace that. And for a broken world, we can say, listen, we have a message for you. We can introduce you to your creator. And as you are reconciled to him, you will discover yourself. You will know who you are. And that's the message we have in Christ as well. So verse 9 continues and says, And the young women pleased him, that's the the eunuch, and won his favor, and he, and he quickly promo- provided for her with her cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So why did Esther won favor? Was it because she was beautiful? Was it because she, she was charming? She had a good personality? Or was it God? Now, like most biblical truths, it's all of the above. <laughs> it's not necessarily only either or, right? It's because she's beautiful, because God has made her charming, that's why she won favor. And that's also the gift of God. We think of Joseph. Remember Joseph being sold into slavery. And what do we read? Listen to Genesis 
39 and 23, it says, The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. Another example in a near context is Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So you see, God is behind this favor that Esther is receiving. God gives favor. God can withhold favor. God has that authority. There's a brilliant quote I think we need to remember in this regard is, all who appear to have control over us are under his control. All who appear, if you feel you are in the hands of men, no, you're not. You're in the hands of God. God can change the heart of those who is in authority over you. He can, if you pray, if you trust him, if it's his will. He has that power. He has that authority. And so we see God is working out his purposes for Esther by granting her favor through ordinary means. Verse 10 continues and says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. She kept her faith secret. She didn't reveal that she was a Jew. Perhaps Mordecai said to her that she should be silent because of he knew that if they would know, then that might have caused um, prejudice against her as a Jew or as an exile. Perhaps it was his way to just make sure that she will do well in this co- competition, right? Not cause unnecessary offense. Now, the question is, was she right to do that? Was she right to be silent? Was she right to partake? In this whole thing in the first place. You see, Daniel seemed to have done the opposite of this. What did Daniel do when he was brought the food of the king? He said, I'm not going to defile myself. I'm a Jew. I belong to God. His friends too refused to bow down to the idol and instead was willing to be burned alive instead of worshipping an idol. And so we see Esther was no Daniel. Esther wasn't like Daniel. She seems, with quotation marks, to embrace this whole new life, this whole new opportunity she's receiving. She eats what is set before her. She keeps her faith private. She even submits to the immoral practice that is about to take place. Look at what happens next in verses 12 to 14. Now, when the term turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations of, for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So this was not just a beauty contest. This was a sex contest as well. A competition, right? The women didn't go for tea, for a cup of tea with the king in the evening. right? We can use our imagination. They went into the evening and they went in the morning and then they went to the second harem, which is called the harem for whom? The concubines. Do you see what is, this is actually a very sad picture here. She's been used. She's no longer a virgin. Now she's a concubine. She's now something in between married and single. Something in between there. 
Now again, see God's providence, God's guidance in the life of Esther. Notice how the author reminds us again of who she is in verse 15. Again we read, When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abiel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter. Now you might say, why does the author repeat it? We already know this. He has already said that she's an orphan, that she's been taken by Mordecai. Why repeat it? I think the point is, the author wants to intentionally contrast her, her natural birth and what her background is to how God is overruling that to bring her to where he wants her to be. So we read next, verse 15 to 18. Look at this. It says, When the term came for Esther, the daughter of Abiel, the uncle of Mordecai, to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. First, just look at her practical wisdom, right? She takes nothing but what Haggai, the eunuch, recommends. Esther used ordinary means. She, she listened to right counsel. Now, God was guiding her. God was giving this counsel to her through an ordinary human being. And I think with our lives as well is God often guides our lives through ordinary means. You see, um, in these small coincidences, it is God's, like one author said, God's miracles in which he decides to, to remain anonymous. So small coincidence, small things. I don't know if about you, I've, I've experienced this very literally when I would ask the Lord, Lord, I need wisdom. I need guidance in this topic, on this issue, in this matter. And suddenly that week, I just get the emails that's on that topic. Or I talk to a random person that talks about that topic. Like, hey, I've been thinking about that. Why? Like, just seems like everything, everybody is answering my question that I asked to God. But Lord, no, I was waiting for your answer, Lord. You see, because those two things are not necessarily in competition with one another. When we pray and God answers it through another human being, that's God's answering. Now, that doesn't mean... Whatever people say, you just have to swallow. Remember Psalm 1, that we shouldn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. So we should be careful who we choose to listen to. But even if a wicked person gives us right counsel, thank God. It's God's wisdom that he gives you through people. right? But we are so slow to trace it back. We just think, wow, what a coincidence. How random, how lucky. Instead, the same God of Esther is the God of today who uses everything. Now, back to our question. Did Esther do the right thing? She went in to the king. She's not resisting. She's not saying, sorry, because of my faith, I can't do this. I can't even be married to a pagan king. We know in scripture that it's, it's wrong for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. We know that from 1 Corinthians 7. So that rule probably applies in the Old Testament as well, right? That God's people couldn't intermarry with pagans with those who hate God. And yet, this is what happens. This is what she does. You see what I mean by this chapter is not as clean as we would have wanted it to be. It's messy. And yet, even despite the messy life of sin, 
God is still working out his purposes for both Esther and his people. And isn't that your hope and my hope as well? Is your life clean? Is your life not messy? You see, we are all like Esther in some sense. We have all failed and sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But our hope is that 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 does not thwart God's purposes. Even the sinful choices of men do not thwart His plans for us, His purposes for the universe to unite all things in His Son. Now, that is no doubt a dangerous truth, right? That even despite your sin, God is still working through your life and working all things out for your good. Why? Because what would the devil take? The devil will use this beautiful doctrine and say, you see, don't worry. God uses your sin. Go for it. Enjoy your sin, right? God is still sovereign, even over your sin. And like Paul, I want to say, by no means. That's not right. That's sinful. Resist him. Wear the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness. That when the devil tempts you, you say, no, I'm going to trust God and live holy. You see, so this truth is not to encourage you for future sins. It's to encourage you about past sins, past failures, things that you, you've done and you know I'm wrong. I might, might have messed up God's plan for my life because of my past choices, my past actions. And this text and Esther and the Bible says, no, that's not true. God is even sovereign over our sins, over our mistakes to bring you where you are now. To, to where you are sitting right now is because of your past choices and past things that happened. That's God guiding you, bringing you to the point he wants you to be. It gives you rest to know that God is this sovereign, this in control. And if you're still struggling with that, let me give you the greatest example in the whole world. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The early church was so comforted by this truth that God uses sinful actions, sinful people to accomplish his purposes. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verse 26 to 28. The, the, the church are being persecuted by the authorities. And listen to what they say. They say, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Jews, the Gentiles, they did whatever they wanted to do. No one manipulated, no one forced them. There wasn't divine strings attached to their arms, like, what am I doing? Why am I crucifying this man? No. They all did that because they wanted to. And yet, what did the early church believe about their actions? They did whatever God predestined to take place. And you see, why they prayed that is because they were being persecuted. They were, being, they were suffering for Christ. So they were saying, Lord, you are sovereign over these rulers who killed your son, and therefore you are sovereign over our suffering when they want to kill us. Lord, we trust you. No ruler is in ultimate control. They think they are. They're not. 
You see, even the messy world of sin is not outside of God's rule. Those who seem to be in control of us are under his control. Remember Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens do what? He laughs at the rulers who think that they can overthrow God and overthrow his purposes. Now, chapter ends with another key piece of the story. Look at verses 21 to 23. 21 to 23 says, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bichthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. How lucky for Mordecai that he was at the right place at the right time to discover this plot. How lucky was Mordecai that queen, that Esther was the queen at that time, that he could tell Esther and the king. How lucky that this was carefully recorded down. Right? Wrong. It wasn't luck. It wasn't luck. I don't think Christians should have luck in their dictionaries. That's not biblical thinking. Right? Chance. Lucky. Unlucky. By the stars. I don't know what else. We trace it all back to the God who is orchestrating these things. You see, so when good things happen to you, don't say, wow, what luck. Say, wow, what a God. What an amazing God that has given me this opportunity, that's opened this door, that I can be blessed. I thank Him. He's over this. Right, but what about those bad days? What about the days when it's not going well? Do we trace that back to unlucky? Well, look at what even our text says something very interesting. Look at verse 23 again. It says, And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. How unlucky that Mordecai wasn't rewarded. Right? Because it was the usual thing for Persian kings to do when anyone did a good deed to them, to reward them lavishly, to show off what a good man this man was to the king. But by some chance, the king forgot to reward Mordecai. Yo, how unlucky, right? No. And with you as well, right? When something bad happens, God, why? Why now? Why not later? Why in this season? Why in this situation, Lord? Couldn't you have just waited another day for this to come in my life? So we feel upset with God because bad things happen to us and we don't understand why he would do that, why he would allow it. But for those of you who have read the rest of the story of Esther, the king had to forget. He had to. Just like Joseph. Remember when Joseph interpreted the, the wine, the cupbearer's dream? And he says, remember me. And for two years he forgot. Randomly. By some chance. Until, until the pharaoh had a dream. And he remembered at the right time. And in the same way, In this story, we'll see at the right time, the king will remember. And what a timing that would be. It's the best part of the book. I can't wait to get there. I just want to skip until chapter 6 or 7. Okay? But beloved, this is the point of this story. God is at work all the time, behind the scenes. Those random coincidences, those bad things that happen to you. God is busy. 
He's working in everything to get you to places, to lead you and guide you, to get you to the good works that he prepared beforehand for you to take place, to do. Always, 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 always. We can say, if you put a banner over Esther 2, it's Matthew 6 verse 8. God, your Father, knows what you need even before you ask him. God is preparing Esther to be at the place to meet the needs of the Jews. He knows what they would need even before they needed it, and he brought Esther to the right place so that when they pray, and pray they must, he would give them the solution and the answer. And that's the same with us. Before you ask God, God was already aware of your need and he was aware before your need. He was already preparing everything around you for that prayer you are praying right now. He is working behind the scenes. Beloved, there is only one hero of the Bible. Even the heroes and the heroines of history are littered with sin, littered with failure. David committed adultery. Solomon was unfaithful to God with lust and idolatry. Noah was drunk. Moses became impatient and angry. Esther assimilated into a pagan culture and submitted to immorality. All of them needed a savior. And that's why the Bible takes pains to show us that there was only one man who never sinned. There was only one who is righteous. The righteous one, the Lord Jesus. One man never sinned. And he didn't just ignore your sin. He died for it. He paid for it. We couldn't change our hearts. We we cannot just try harder, do better, encourage ourselves. But he can change us by his powerful, transforming grace. You see, Esther will become a heroine. Right? She will. But look above Esther. Look at her God. He's the hero of the heroine. So, beloved, take heart. Think of your life. Think of your past. Think of your parents. Think of your upbringing. Think of the pain and hurt. Think of the things that you felt you wished were different. You wish you could change. Take heart. It's not senseless suffering, purposeless events. God is for you. He's working out his plan. And he has providentially brought you to this place to hear this following words. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, when we see your, your providence in action, we confess that there is so much we don't understand. There's so much mystery of how you are working out your plans, your purposes, even through sin and evil choices, Lord. We'll thank you that that also is our hope, that you have used the greatest sin that ever happened, the crucifixion of your own beloved Son, to save us from our sins. O Lord, lift up our weary, weary hearts, our broken hearts over our own bad choices and sinful choices. 
And remind us of this, this truth, Lord, that you are writing our story. And you are the hero of our story. Oh Lord, I pray that you would truly comfort us and help us to live rightly in the light of your providence. We give you all the thanks and the glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen.